if they're coming out of big corporate America, they're going to have a major problem trying to fit in because the cannabis industry changes so rapidly. This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. I'm Brian Fields, and with me, as always, is Kellen Finney. And this week, we've got a very special guest, R.W. Navis, executive recruiter and founder of The Canapack. R.W., thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? Great, great. This was a long time in planning. Absolutely, and, absolutely. Um, good that we're finally doing it. Yeah, excited to dive in. Kellen, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. Really excited to talk to R.W. and just kind of talk about the C-suite and cannabis events and, you know, all the fun stuff. How are you doing today, Brian? I'm doing great. I'm excited to talk to RW and talk about some of the the learnings that he's found, some of the things that he's learned throughout his journeys that can help so many cannabis companies that are having such challenging decisions, especially now where we are. But RW, before we dive in, we've got a little East Coast, West Coast battle. And for today, I'd like to know, originally, where were you born? Which coast? Oh, I was born in uh, the New York area and uh, lived there for until I was nine my father was also an executive recruiter, and uh, his firm was sold to Corn Ferry way back then. And he had, a, I guess, a non-compete to work in the New York area. And so he went out to move to uh, Los Angeles at that time and mostly been in Southern California a large part of my career. I also have lived in Alabama, Florida, and, and the Bay Area up in San Francisco, too. I appreciate so, that. But I think Kellen, just from a birth certificate standpoint, I don't know how he could not be the East Coast. I mean, but like from a like life percentage perspective, he's for, is, there, is there loyalties on the West Coast, RW? Um, yeah, probably more. Like <laughs> I, I, I moved at an age where sports teams, I, I got pretty involved in the LA sports teams. Oh, What's well. Favorite sports team in LA? Lakers, Lakers for sure. Okay, okay. Yeah. And um, I was a Rams fan, but they moved around a lot. And then uh, the Dodgers, I was a big Dodger fan too. And, you know, not so much anymore, but. Uh, All that's um, getting edited out. He's an East Coaster. We're taking him on the East Coast. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I like, <laughs> I like it. Uh, you know, I've been back to New York quite a few times in the last two years on, on business and stuff. And it's, um, it's great to go back. I've actually had a chance to go back and kind of see where I lived, where I, where, where, you know, where I was raised and everything back there and everything. So it's, it's fun. Maybe we now we found the connection between Cali products and the and the East Coast of New York. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and you know, and the world of the you know the executive recruiting headhunter world was actually created in New York. It makes sense. That's where that's where that was invented in New York. So, yeah, interesting. So, yeah. I guess before we dive in, for our listeners, unfamiliar about you, can you give a little background about yourself and then how you got into the cannabis space? Sure, sure. So, I've been an executive recruiter. My entire life, the last eight years, focused on cannabis. And previous to that was commercial banking. And as I mentioned, my father was an executive recruiter. I joined him after a couple of years stint as a CPA with Pete Marwick Mitchell. It was called Pete Marwick at that time. Now it's KPMG. And um, yeah, I've been retired a couple of times, but came back into cannabis about eight years ago. Thought it would be exciting. Main reason I got involved was my son at that time was maybe smoking a little too much, in my opinion. And I wanted to kind of dive in there and uh, let him know this was a business that people were making money at. And it wasn't just, uh, you know, uh, all uh, stoners hanging around having fun. So so that was my, my impetus. I got involved and I really enjoyed the people. And I think I saw a, a big need for what 
for what I do. And uh, I'll just I'll just take quickly. I, I got started really on the media side. I wrote articles for some of the larger publications like MJ Biz and uh, Marijuana Venture. And what I noticed was that what people in cannabis were calling executive recruiting was really staffing. So they were staffing companies were charging them executive recruiting fees for doing nothing but staffing. And the difference between a real headhunter and staffing is it, 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 staffing, they just post your job online and they wait for people to come to, you know, answer the, the call. A headhunter goes and gets your person from one of your competitors. That's the whole point. And the difference is, you know, there are many good people that are looking on job boards and stuff. But if you've got a position where, let's just say, a director of um, sales, the best directors of sales are probably doing well and very busy where they are. And they're not looking at job boards. If they are, it's probably because they're unemployed or they're about to be unemployed. And so if you want to win with your company, you need to be hiring the, you know, taking people away from one of your competitors that you may have some something that they don't have. You might be able to pay them more. The location might be better for them. There could be bonus stock options or something that might make more sense. And that's the way to really do well. And I think cannabis is over the eight years that I've been involved, they're starting to understand this, that it's not just getting resumes from a staffing company and hiring somebody for critical roles. Now, there is a, a level of position where that's fine. I would say, you know, um, more entry level, uh, you know, uh, up to a certain point. And then after that, they should really be working with a sophisticated executive recruiter. And the fee structure is almost ex identical. So there, there's no reason why they wouldn't. I'm just going to assume that cannabis, which has a likely of a high turnover rate, and these companies, these cannabis companies have limited runways with capital being such a premium. So making these critical decisions are at paramount. So having someone come to you or going to get the right person, the most important characteristics is making sure the person that is selected is the right one for the team. And I think one of the statements that you say that those don't usually get it usually fail. And I'd like you to expand on that. Yeah, I tell you what I've noticed is that the company, most of the companies, I mean, I almost say just about all companies that I do business with are still in business now, uh, even in California. And, you know, it's been a rough go uh, in the California market. And, um, you know, so I, I would say to people that if you don't understand the difference between a headhunter and a staffing company, you're probably going to have trouble making it because you're going to make a lot of mistakes hiring people. And I think that that's absolutely critical. And there are there are many very seasoned uh, executives in cannabis, and there are some people running companies that they've never really hired people before, so they don't they don't know uh, what the right way to go is. And um, and 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 there's a big difference. And and uh, you know, and and we guarantee our people. So um, you know, I just think, and and I'm not the only person who is good uh, at this, but uh, I think companies need to really understand the difference. So cannabis hasn't been along for, for that long. What percentage of recruiting occurs inside the space and what percentage of recruiting do you have to like look outside of the cannabis space, right? Like there's a lot of similarities in like a director of sales job, right? Um, yeah. So like what is that kind of breakdown right now currently? Well, when they hire me, they want someone who's going to walk in with a Rolodex. 
So if it's in sales, they are already in camps at another company. Now, there are positions where they can bring people from out of the industry. I think any financial position, whether it's controller, CFO, VP of finance, staff accountant, those are all pretty transferable skills, uh, although they would still prefer to have somebody coming from cannabis. But, you know, those are transferable. They could bring somebody from out of out of the cannabis industry. Um, I think the challenge for people coming from out of the cannabis industry is that if they've been with a startup, they're okay. If they're coming out of big corporate America, they're going to have a major problem trying to fit in because the cannabis industry changes so rapidly and it's a, it's a new industry and it's, it's, it's a, like a giant startup. So the, the best candidates, I mean, it's great to have the corporate training, but then maybe you've had one stop at a startup somewhere. So you're used to that startup environment. Yeah. Well, I, I would say other positions I'm working on a general counsel position right now that could be coming from out of, out of the cannabis industry for sure. And, uh, and there are, there are others. Um, sometimes the operations positions, uh, you know, cannabis, if, if you think about it, cannabis is made up of, of what is it? Farming, cultivation, manufacturing. Well, manufacturing is almost like food production. So people can come out of food production to fill some of those roles. And, uh, and then you also have um, extraction. And uh, extraction is also can come out of the industry, but there are certainly some unique characteristics that where, where it's good to have cannabis in your background. Yeah, I, I think if you're in the cannabis industry, right, and you're looking to hire, there's kind of two different paths. You can hire someone with inexperience, and then they can learn, which is expensive and takes time. Or you can pay a little more for someone with experience, which is more expensive, but that learning curve is a little shorter. Both kind of paths lead to the same result, but ultimately the choice is up to the individual. So I thought I'd know RW, how do you guarantee the employees? Like, are, is it a vetting process that your team goes through? How do you qualify them to understand that someone's skills that they did at another company make them a good fit for the roles that you're going to put them in in the future? Well, at this point, you know, I've been doing this for many decades and I'm pretty good at, at looking at a resume and talking to people. We, we, you know, after I've looked at a resume and talked and uh, and maybe had a Zoom call with a candidate, I pretty much know whether they're for real or not. I mean, that's just the skill set that I think I've acquired. But uh, you like to get people that have a pretty good track record um, where they're not hopping jobs. Uh, I recently filled a controller position and the person who had been in there previous to that had had five jobs in two years. Now, some of that can be client fault, but I'd say five jobs in two years is probably the candidate's fault at that point. So you don't, it's you really look, impressive. Yeah, you, you, you look for, <laughs> you, you look for uh, a little bit, you know, people that are uh, a little more loyal to their, their you know, their, their employer. And then we do, uh, we do our own background check. Um, uh, and then we also, um, you know, we, we, we vet them out with references. We talk to people that they used to work for or work with, et cetera. And, and, and sometimes too, knowing which companies they've worked for is big because I know that certain companies have very strict hiring practices. And if you got hired there, they've somewhat done a little bit of the vetting for us. Sure. When you're having conversations with people outside the industry, right, and they're curious about cannabis, do you 
kind of give them the honest truth that the industry is a little harder than they might like, because sometimes I feel like people outside the industry have this perception of cannabis and how the industry right. operates. And a lot of the media is pointing it out that these companies are making a ton of money, maybe not so much now from like a public standpoint. And then you kind of get to cannabis and all the tools and the, and the opportunities are a little harder than your most normal and you expect. Do you have these conversations to kind of give them like an honest perspective? I do. I get calls like this frequently, um, especially from, you know, corporate people. I remember, I remember I got a call from a general counsel in New York and he said, I really want to get in the cannabis industry. And we started talking and, and he, and I said, okay, well, what, what, what kind of comp are you looking for? Well, I make 500,000 a year. And I'm, I'm, you know, I was trying to explain to him that the, the comp is not there yet in cannabis. Someday it will be, but right now, you know, those kinds of high level positions are are few and far between. The salaries in cannabis are probably base salary. A lot of a lot of cannabis positions are incentivized where you, the base may not be that fantastic, but there's a bonus and equity package that's part of the deal. And so I'd say that cannabis is is lagging a little bit to more competitive industries right now. And when it does eventually get legalized, when safe banking comes in and there'll be a lot more capital in the industry and 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 uh, some of those changes will will make uh, the industry much more profitable. I mean I think when when they do away with 280e people have told me that every cannabis company will be worth twice as much now that they can deduct the same things that other companies can do. So uh, if you combine that with an influx of capital that's a different ballgame. Like a magic wand just instantly right. makes the industry. It could happen this fall or maybe not. But, you know, it's it's on, I guess it's on the table again, both rescheduling and safe banking. So, again, my favorite aspect of it is we're not expecting different rules and regulations than everyone else. We just want to have normal practices like every exactly, other industry. Right. Just, right. just standard expectations for what I need. Yeah, and reasonable tax structure. Not right, just reasonable. Just give yeah. us like a fair chance here. Um, so kind of expanding on that, one would assume when, when these companies come to you and they're expecting you to have a long Rolodex, that probably leads really nicely into the Canapac and kind of the origin of that. Can you take us through how that was formed and how the two of them integrate together? Sure. So um, during COVID, I started a Zoom call because the the webinars that I went to, I found were really pretty boring and they were the, the same structure over and over again. They would have a half an hour webinar and they'd have one expert talk for 10 minutes and then another one for 10 minutes. And I was like, Whoa, I'm ready to go to sleep. So we decided we want to do something different. And we made our zoom call much more interactive. We didn't, we wouldn't let anybody speak for more than a minute or two. It was all Q and a. And so we did that for God, at least a year and a half every week. And I developed a pretty loyal following. And as soon as we could, we said, well, let's go in person. And coming out of COVID, we wanted to go to places where people would be comfortable in person. So we went outdoor rooftops and we started in Oakland and we gravitated between Southern California and Northern California. And then uh, as, as time went on, we went out to Arizona and then we've been to New York, Washington, D.C., Miami, Chicago, New Jersey, and uh, you know, really spread out to where we're we're national now. We go probably once a month at least, maybe twice a month. And uh, the whole idea, uh, another thing that was, I've been to so many events. I've been to literally every conference, and people will recognize me and, and know that they they know that I've been to every conference. 
um, for the last eight years. It seems like I've gone to every single one. And when I noticed that some of the ones that were more elite, that the only people showing up were people selling services into the industry, not the people that were actually operators. So the can of pack, we focus totally on operators. And uh, the, the event, it's invite only, and it's paid for by the sponsors. So the only vendors uh, or people selling services are really the sponsors. And uh, everyone else, we really try to, we try to get very interesting people, but we, we really try to focus on operators, the people that are actually in the cannabis industry, whether they own a chain of dispensaries, whether they are uh, cultivators, uh, extractors, uh, manufacturers, whatever their their angle is, we that, that's who we try to get to show up, and and we we've tried to keep it at the C suite level, so it's CEOs, CFOs, founders, managing partners, uh, you know, people like that, and and uh, uh, they do business together. They do a lot of business at these events. I mean, I, I can tell you, there's a number of companies that have been bought and sold uh, by meeting people at these events, and um, it's very low key. We try to keep the sponsors low key, but but people, you know, they get to really see what the sponsors are actually all about and what they do. And uh, I think it's been a great business development tool for me and for the sponsors. We try to keep the sponsors at four at the most, and we spread the costs among amongst those four sponsors. Give us some insight to the event for those who haven't attended. Potentially, if you're a sponsor, do you get uh, access to the guest list? Do you get to do a presentation? How do you get influence the right people to benefit your organization when kind of funding the the event to right. make it worthwhile for all the parties? So sponsors, number one, we we post about them on LinkedIn. We send emails to the to our list uh, about who's sponsoring, especially before the event, including pictures. So they recognize the people when they get there. When they get to the event, they can bring their team with them. Sponsors can bring their team. And then I will go out of my way and, 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 and my ambassador, we have two people that act as ambassadors for me at these events. They memorize the list. They know the sponsors. So they will actually walk the people to the sponsor. And, uh, you know, we're very good at that. I'm very good at that. And I, I think that that allows the sponsor to come out away from these events with four or five conversations that are going to go, uh, you know, uh, to another step. Do you guys uh, theme these meetings as far as like one is more focused on cultivation potentially and, and kind of try to tailor it like that? No, they're, they're pretty much just high level uh, uh, executive um, happy hours generally, you know, and, and the idea is we go to you. So everywhere we go, most of the people are, are, are probably driving from within one hour to the event. Some people follow our events and they fly to all of them. Uh, but in general, we're, we're coming to you and, and it's an evening event. Uh, usually we start at five or six o'clock and we go for about three hours. And it's um, we have stopped for announcements. So, you know, the problem is the events are going so good and everybody's engaged that you, you know, I'm, I'm sort of hesitant about whether to actually stop the events and recognize people because that almost signals like, okay, is that the end of the event? And, you know, when things are going really well, I don't want to touch it. So I kind of go back and forth on that myself. We have, we have done announcements at some events. Some events are sort of perfect for that. 
and some aren't. It just kind of depends. But um, and then I'll do follow up emails, LinkedIn posts, and we'll do whatever we can to support the sponsors. I want to go back to what you said about the person who memorized the list and then kind of walks the individuals through the sponsors. I think that's such an important, delicate balance too, because the sponsors that are investing capital into it need to have that kind of potential ROI from that to make it worthwhile to consider in the future. And that's such a challenging balance then to see that person in the room who you are looking to speak to and that you have some sort of opportunity to connect that isn't like that cold, uncomfortable conversation and having that handoff, kind of like a concierge service makes that interaction that first one's so important because it is like that that handoff introduction that makes both parties feel like this conversation is necessary yeah and we uh also the you know the sponsors uh, get to invite people so really if you look at what the cost of, of you know what the sponsorship cost is and sponsorship costs are somewhere between let's say 2500 and six thousand dollars for at five or six thousand dollars, you can you can be the lead sponsor at most of these events. And you know, depending on your level of sponsorship, you can invite as many people as you want. So effectively, let's say you have clients, and it, it's almost like you're entertaining them for free, really. I mean, by being a sponsor. I mean, if if you're if you're bringing in, let's say, if you're a twenty five hundred dollars sponsor, you bring ten guests, you're already. I mean, if you look at the way where we go, these exotic restaurants and everything's top notch, you're going to spend $100, $150 per person entertaining those people anyway. So the sponsorship's almost like free, you know, at that point, if you're organized enough to get the right people to show up to the event. So how do you get those right people to show up at the event? Because it's one thing for the sponsor to invite. It's another thing to help secure the individuals to attend, which I'm sure your team kind of helps that balance between the two parties. Well, I have 22,000 followers on LinkedIn and they all come from cannabis. I started this profile when in the cannabis industry and they're all C, mostly all C-level executives. Um, so no matter where we go, I have a pretty strong following of people that I invite to the events and from our guest lists from previous events. So they, they, you know, they, and that's the, one of the draws is they want us, they want to be in front of those people. Then I always ask the sponsors, okay, who do you want to attend? And then I will make sure that we get the word out to those people. And then when people, we will periodically send the guest list out to people. And when they see who's on the guest list, then people decide, Hey, I, I want to be part of that. And, uh, and so it all just kind of works. It works its way to a perfect situation. Do you have any success stories you can share between two parties that maybe didn't know each other or ended up meeting and doing some business that to give others some insight into the type of conversations and experiences? Well, uh, one that immediately comes to mind is that um, uh, Greenfield Cannabis was sold to Stizzy Shrine Group at one of my events, a series of my events, the introductions, the whole thing kind of happened uh, at that. And, and there have been others too, um, Leaf Holdings took over iconic, iconic brands, and that was that uh, happened at my events. So there, there's there's a number of stories like that, and then many there have been many executives uh, who have you know found positions and and uh, companies finding people, etc. Vice versa. Who do you think would benefit from these events that is not currently attending them? Well, I would say companies in different areas. Um, there are always companies that even like, let's say we got to Arizona, there are some 
a couple of companies that I'm just being introduced to now that that have not attended who really should be attending. They're going nationwide. Uh, I would say anybody that's going nationwide in cannabis should be considering this, either attending or as a sponsor. And and we'll invite most companies. Uh, we'll, we'll allow them to have one or two people. And then after a while, we'll kind of ask them to sponsor. Or if they if they want to bring more, if they want to bring their sales team, then they really need to be a sponsor of the event. What's the biggest pushback people aren't interested in participating? Is it capital? Is there another reason? No, I don't really get much of a pushback other than that people, uh, you know, they just don't know about it. I think most people that know about it, and once they come, uh, they, they enjoy it. And usually we have a hotel that's associated. For example, when we do our event in West Hollywood, we go to um, a restaurant called EPNLP, and they have a, a rooftop that overlooks all of uh, the, the mountains there in Hollywood and West Hollywood and Beverly Hills. And then about eight, you know, about nine o'clock, we go back to Petite Hermitage where everybody stays overnight and uh, we're able to get a preferred rate. And it's quite an exotic Hollywood type place where, where just about anything will happen on the rooftop. And I think we've seen anything happen uh, on the rooftop uh, late at night. I remember one of our events, we were there and, uh, and Woody Harrelson was having his birthday party. And of course he's a big cannabis guy. He owns, he owns a dispensary called the woods. And so when he found out who we were, Next thing you know, we merged and we that we were everybody was right in the middle of his birthday party. And uh, you know, that so that that's the kind of stuff that happens at Petite. Um, so we go to there uh, at least twice a year. And um, I don't get much pushback. Uh it's just, you know, getting the right kinds of people. Again, we could fill this event up with people trying to sell things into the industry, but we really want the people that are running the industry, the decision makers um, that, that run cannabis wherever we go. So how, what's the cap? How do you guys cap it? I have to play. That's a, that's a real work of art, um, which I've been very lucky <laughs> at. Yeah. It's crazy because I'm able to just adjust it really by the amount of emails, reminders that I send out. Like oh, if wow. I see, if I see that we're getting too crowded, I stop sending reminders. <laughs> And maybe there might there might be three days go by right up to the event where hey we still people say we still having this event yeah yeah we're having it but we wanna and I have to do that in West Hollywood sometimes tone it down a little because it gets it gets a little out of control but um, we try to keep it uh, at at the larger events you know somewhere between 100 and 125 and and we're at a space where you can see everybody at the event so you're safe you I'll get to you I'll come over to you later. You know, but if you get more than 125, I feel like it loses. You, you get to the point where you can't possibly meet everybody. And I don't know what that number is. I think it's 125, 140, anything more than that. That's what psychology many, says, right? 150. It's too many people. Yeah. And uh, and then, um, you know, there's certain venues we go to where it's a little smaller. But um, that's what's worked for us. It's definitely a, a balanced feel, it seems like, kind of like an artistical touch, understanding the the players involved, the conversation, the location, the kind of the goal of the, uh, the event. And then for you to kind of aggressively trying to pursue people inside that field and then have that that balance to go a little more and a little not. But it seems like if you don't get an email close to the event and you're we're kind of maxed out, RW doesn't really want you there. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's more about keeping the, the crowd. Once you're on the list, you're on the list. 
And, uh, you know, anybody who, you know, accepts, you know, that's, that's great, but it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a little bit different. And look, we're just approaching this. I'm trying to protect the sponsors. They want to make deals at these events. They want to do business with somebody. Same thing with me. We want to have fun, but we also want to do business. And, uh, so it's a, it's, it's kind of a, an art and it's worked out really well. And I, I think that, uh, you know, we have a strong following, um, the people that are in the area, um, they like to come and they, and they want to come back. I, I really haven't had, I, you know, any real blowback, um, any, uh, I'm trying to think of anything that's, that's come up. It's challenging getting sponsors in this cannabis economy, but, but people have to remember that like uh, in New York and New Jersey, they're doing quite well. They're, I mean, they're, they're just getting started and they're, and, you know, whereas maybe there's some people struggling in California, some people aren't struggling in California. There are some people that are doing quite well. So we, we've really haven't had too much trouble getting sponsorship. I mean, we're certainly aware of, of the general uh, mood in the, in the cannabis industry, which I'd say it's lukewarm. Um, it, the new markets are going strong and there are pockets, there are companies in every market. I'm actually quite busy in California with my executive recruiting because there, there are a handful of players that are doing what very well. That's great to hear. So what is the most expensive lesson you've learned? Wow. At the events or in executive recruiting? What's the first one that came to mind? Interesting. Well, I would say, you know, we ran an event in New York and, um, you know, I have to, one thing I have to do when I'm running these events, I want to have a very close relationship with the people running it and the people I want, I want them to want us. And at this event in New York, it was more of like, you're lucky to have us. And I, and, and we were sort of treated that way. And so I would, I wouldn't say was it, it, it was by far our most expensive event. It cost $25,000 to put this event on. And it was just a, you know, three hour happy hour, <laughs> you know, but uh, I would say that, you know, having a good relationship with the venues, it was new for me setting up. I knew where to go and I, and I had a, I, I knew how to run a party and all that, but dealing directly with these restaurants and negotiating contracts with them and stuff. That was, you know, I learned, I had to learn maybe the hard way. Good old New York right there. Yeah. Oh yeah. Tough, tough cookies. Dream smoking session, three people dead or alive. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, uh, I always turn on whenever I can find whatever interview I love Emily Blunt. So I would love to go have some cannabis and, and talk to her sometime. That would be for sure. You'd have to, that's a tough question. You're going to put me on the spot here. Cannabis people. It could be uh, anybody. It doesn't have to just be cannabis people. It could be former president. Famous figures or, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I know everybody raps on this guy, but everyone that I've, everyone that I've ever met who's actually spent time with him thinks he's the greatest guy in the world. Bill Clinton, I think it'd be entertaining to, to have a, a little smoke with him. You know, and people tell me that he's very, when you're with, when you're in the room with him and you're talking to him, he's the greatest guy in the world. And uh, I'm not so sure about his partner, but uh, I had a great car ride uh, and, and it was involved in the cannabis industry. I drove Pim Fox from Santa Barbara to San Jose and he was, he has a show on Bloomberg every day, uh, or he did at that time. And uh, he'd interviewed just about everybody. And I drove him up to, and we had five hours in the car and we were talking about everything. And 
and um, and we were talking about the Clintons, and he said, Raymond, imagine that you had never stopped for a red light in 25 years. What do you think you'd be like? And uh, so I kind of summed it up. But um, let me see if there's a third. We got to a third. Um, I'll have to think. I don't want to hold you up. I'll, I'll come. I'll, 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 it'll come to me later on here. Yeah. I just want to say for the record, I'd like to never stop at a red light ever again. Also, so. <laughs> I saw that. I saw that just the other day in L.A. The whole freeway was jammed up, and it was, I believe, the VP, and she must have been going to Burbank Airport or, or Van Nuys Airport. And wow, they had that. It was crazy. It was like it was like like OJ on the freeway. I mean, the whole freeway was shut down except for this motorcade, and obviously not making the Angelinos very happy because it shut down the freeway for a few minutes. You got a real problem. Yeah, not great. When you got started in your cannabis journey, what did you get right? Most importantly, what did you get wrong? Well, I think I got right, as I mentioned exactly, that that they people did not understand the difference between staffing and, uh, and executive recruiting. I was absolutely right about that. And I've gradually been able to educate them to the point where you know, we're, you know, solidly busy. And I, I think that we'll be more and more busy. Um, so it was a good move, a little bit of a chancy move. Most people in uh, in in my world, executive recruiting world, were all afraid to jump in. They're almost still afraid to jump in because it's not, not legal. What did I get right? What did I get wrong? I would say that maybe something that people don't know, and I may have thought this in the beginning, there are a lot of very solid business people that are involved in cannabis. You know, many of the owners of these companies have been very successful uh, in other endeavors. And, uh, you know, we've talked about, you know, uh, mentioned a couple of Democrat people. I'm, I'm sort of agnostic, but many of the people that own cannabis companies are actually Republicans. And that's something that people would not think. And I've, 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 I've you know, I've told that. And they're, and uh, so I think it's important that you don't, you know, you service your client and, you know, forget about all that, that kind of nonsense of who's who and, and uh, just respect people for what they've done and what they've accomplished. And um, yeah, so that I would say that what I got wrong, I, I would have, and I think most people coming into cannabis would have assumed that everybody in cannabis was liberal and progressive. And, uh, you know, that's definitely not the case. Uh, we hear often rich people think that the industry is full of companies making money and the individuals within it making a ton of money. The green rush was what they referred to, but uh, also not true about the industry. Well, there's a number of people that have done very, very well. But they've um, been in it for probably a, a long amount of time and have probably dealt exactly, with ups and downs. Exactly. Right? They yeah. haven't been those quick to rush in, put in a ton of money and not gotten that ROI back that they exactly. had originally. Yeah. All right, RW, prediction time. Considering your extensive experience in connecting C-suite executives and founders within the cannabis industry, how do you foresee the leadership landscape evolving in the coming decade? What qualities or skills do you predict will be most vital for future leaders in the cannabis space? Well, I think um, for sure, I think that successful executives are going to have to have a pretty solid uh, background in finance. Right now, raising capital is very difficult. so. People have to be very good. If they're running a company, they have to be very good at raising capital. And that's almost defines the winners and losers. If you cannot raise capital, you're going to have a lot of business pretty quick. So I would say, and then being a good steward of that capital and having a track record of being that. 
are, are very important characteristics. I think, I think one thing, the, the industry is, there's, there's a lot of um, people that react very quickly. I think maybe going forward, there's going to be a little bit more where the, uh, the leader of the company, uh, let's say, for example, you, you have somebody that's not performing. A lot of times right now in the cannabis industry, they'll make a knee-jerk reaction, boom, get rid of them. Whereas it might have been easier to sit the person down early, you know, quickly and have that conversation of like, here's, okay, here's what we need from you. These are the deliverables that you've got to give us. Can you do it? And have that conversation, then give them a, a some kind of runway. I'll, I'll tell you a story that I tell people. I placed a um, very high level head of sales and uh, the CEO wanted to fire him after 30 days. And I said, well, I don't know. I, I think you got to give this guy a little more time. And I, and I actually talked to the candidate and he was beside himself. He said, look, this is going to take 60, 90 days to get this right. Well, long story short, they, they kept him on and he brought in 30 million in revenue in like uh, about a year and a half time. He made the company. And uh, uh, I think a little bit more of that, I mean, you know, take your time, hire the right person, and then give them a chance to succeed. And I, I, I'm not saying that that these executives are not always right. So many times they're right with, with right away. They're saying, hey, this is not going to work out. But I think they should give people a little bit more of a runway. And and I know they're under pressure, financial pressure, time pressure from their investors. So it's it's tough. But I think it I think that's a characteristic going forward that'll be necessary as the as the industry becomes a more mature and more um, of uh, 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 you know like a like a traditional business. I think that's great advice, Kellen. I do think that's great advice that Arno you shared. I think maybe grit is probably the only thing I could think of um, going through it, just because the cannabis industry is going to continue to be challenging. I think especially for probably the next five years. My guess is it's going to take five years for the playing field to at least be leveled so that you're at least competing as like a normal business with the tools that everyday businesses currently have, like loans and access to banking and all these other fun things, right? Um, So I think that it's just going to take grit because you're going to have to be able to manage a ton of unknowns. You're going to be raising capital in a really challenging market and you can't write any expenses off and you're selling technically a scheduled one product that the government isn't even recognizing right now. So like, there's a lot of challenges still. And in order to overcome them, it's just going to take sheer grit, in my opinion. What do you think, Brian? I think both those are really good answers. I think lean and mean. I think with the challenges the industry face, like understanding, you know, profitability and ROI of some of these efforts will be really crucial in what separates these companies. And specifically, what comes to mind is understanding some efficiency numbers, right? I think cannabis is full of so many unknown variables, but there are variables during the internal operational process that you can lock in. And when you do lock those in, you can make sound, good financial business decisions, which I think more companies will have to start doing because as we've seen, the capital start to gone away. There's a lot of un- incoming variables. So you need to really understand your numbers so you can make those prudent decisions. Exactly like you said, RW. Excellent. Yeah, that's, that's uh, I agree. And um, uh, I, I think uh, I have a little brighter optimism about the industry. I think people. Um, don't realize how quickly these things can turn around. Let's take the down. The last big downturn was, I think, 19 into early 20. It was sort of the end of 19. I remember coming out of MJ Biz and it, and then it was um, the beginning of 1920. It was definitely dead for 
you know, three, four months or so. And I don't see that happening because there's so many new markets opening up, at least for what I do. There's 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 action going on. And I think we'll just roll right into and then and then in one of these things, the the safe banking, rescheduling, legalization, that'll suddenly fuel California again, even the speculation of it. So while you'll you'll you know, these while these other hot markets may die out a little, the markets that have been depressed will suddenly be in better shape. And that's that's kind of the way I see this rolling going forward. I think that's a perfect way to end it off because I think that's the optimism that a lot of these listeners are looking to hear, especially from someone that sits in your vantage point, understanding and connecting the dots with some of the leadership's biggest players. So RW, for our listeners, they want to learn more about the Canapac, they want to visit you on LinkedIn, or they want to attend one of the events, where can they find you? Yes, well, uh, they can uh, hit me up on LinkedIn. I'm r.w.navis on LinkedIn. Uh, my website is rwnavis.com. And uh, and the website for the uh, events are is the Canapac, P A C, uh, so it's the Canna C A N N A P A C dot com, and uh, just get in touch. Let me know how you want to get involved. Awesome. We'll link it up in the show notes. Thanks for taking the time. This was a lot of fun. Good deal. Enjoyed it, guys. If you've enjoyed this podcast over the last few years, can you please take three minutes or less and leave us a quick review on Apple or Spotify? All reviews make a massive difference for us and help other people like you find this podcast. From the bottom of our hearts, thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, I'm Gary, and I invite you to discover the Cannabis Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on a Canadian's cannabis culture. I would be the Canadian, and my cannabis passion and culture has been building for five decades. I share that passion for this wonderful plant in every episode, through conversations with cannabis advocates and enthusiasts, stories about the ever-changing legal environment, and some hands-on testing of product in a segment I call Cultivar Corner. The Cannabis Podcast, a Canadian's cannabis culture, one token at a time.